Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Law360 Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. It's been a pretty busy week at the court. We've got a lot to get through today. Uh, We had an opinion. We had uh, oral arguments. And we actually had a couple of rare public appearances from justices this week. That's right. The first one... um came from Justice Sotomayor, who spoke virtually to law students at my old alma mater, Fordham, uh, yesterday. She gave a bit of a pep talk to these, you know, young, aspiring lawyers. Um, It's specifically uh, speaking to those who might be feeling a little dejected about the state of the law. Um, She said, wrong things can be changed. And that's what lawyers do is working on changing those wrong things. So if you're disillusioned, then identify what's disillusioning you and become a champion of change. Go out there and fight the battle. That's how I get up every morning, end quote. And I have to say, that's like pretty inspiring words. I know she's talking to lawyers, but even for myself, I was like, okay, that's how I should start up. You know, get up in the morning, be the change, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's kind of not explicitly mentioning probably what's causing a lot of her... Uh, feelings about you know having to f- find reasons to get up in the morning, but I, I suspect it has something to do with being on the losing end of so many big high-profile Supreme Court decisions. But yes, uh, wise words indeed. Um, so around the same time yesterday, Justice Stephen Breyer, who is retired, um, gave a public appearance alongside his brother Natalie, uh, Judge Charles Breyer, who is a senior federal district court judge in San Francisco. Um, both of whom obviously uh, are from San Francisco originally, and they they talked with uh, Dean Allen Morrison about their you know uh, childhood growing up in San Francisco in the 40s and 50s. It was pretty interesting. Uh, you got to see kind of a different side of Justice Breyer. He kind of talks about how his father was the uh, was a lawyer for 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 the school board in San Francisco, and you know he kind of describes the kind of the pluralistic uh nature of growing up in you know cosmopolitan San Francisco so many years ago and how that's really informed his world view over the years definitely uh less so on the uh you know uh headline making comments not exactly the stuff of uh major news um but i i'd say maybe the closest thing anyone got to making news was uh uh Charles Breyer uh, his brother judge Breyer uh, who kind of touched on the recent incident at Stanford involving Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan, um, where he was shouted down by a bunch of Stanford law students that were protesting him. And, you know, this was him kind of giving some advice of his own to law students and says, like, you know, if you're going to be lawyers, you have to learn how to express yourself with, like, through civil discourse and you can't just shout people down. And I think that seems to be the growing consensus among, you know, a wide ideological uh, coalition of public uh, legal figures. Um, But we did get Justice Breyer's top three dinner guests, living or dead, towards the tail end of the conversation. So, Natalie, I ask you, if you were to guess who Justice Breyer's top three dinner guests are, Mm -hmm. who would you say they are? I'm not going to. I'm not going to guess because I just know I'm going to be wrong. But I I, I would (laughs) I'd be interested to hear who who Breyer's known for, like, I think. 
hosting and yeah. you know hosting dinners and being a bit <laughs> of a foodie. Uh, so being who- a bit of a society figure at all the you know the the, the the like the French society galas and state dinners and things like that. Yeah. But no, actually, his three dinner guests kind of belie uh, his his nature as a history buff. So the first one he said was. Uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, you know, he'd have Frederick Douglass on to kind of talk about the state of America, uh, along with uh, the historian and novelist Henry Adams, the American author. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, he says Benjamin Franklin. So pretty down the fairway answers for a Supreme Court justice, very kind of American history oriented. Um, of course, his brother, Charles Breyer, kind of made him look bad by saying his dinner guests would be his late parents to tell him tell them how much he appreciated uh their you know guidance in life so that was kind of a, a Aww, sweet moment that's so sweet <laughs> i i bet I, I bet justice Breyer uh was was wishing he had gone second <laughs> well he did go second actually so he li- oh, well, he heard what? this it answer and he was taken <laughs> it was taken he couldn't repeat the same answer so i i i would do ben franklin too i think that that would be an interesting dinner guest um Okay, so moving on, let's move on to what the court did this week. On Tuesday, we got another opinion. That brings the total number of opinions to eight so far this term. We've only got like, you know, 50 to go uh, by July. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to break this one down? Sure. Just very quickly, this was a six to three decision. It was written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and it's a pretty dry technical case involving a law called the Quiet Title Act. This is a law that allows people to bring property claims against the federal government. And in a nutshell, Sotomayor says that the 12-year statute of limitations under the law um, is non-jurisdictional. That means that you know, in certain circumstances, courts can excuse uh, a plaintiff for you know, not complying or not bringing their suit within the 12 years as is required on, under the terms of the statute saying you know, it's in certain circumstances, basically, it can be it can be waived. It's non-jurisdictional. So this was a win for a Montana couple that was, you know, that's been fighting with the government over a public access easement on their property. So what was the vote breakdown? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Thomas writes a dissent joined by Roberts and Alito. Um, so that leaves Sotomayor in uh, the majority decision with uh, uh, Kagan, uh, Jackson, and the remaining conservative appointees on the court. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but we haven't seen Robert's dissent in a merits case yet, right? No, this is his first uh, dissent to a merits decision so far this term. And what that does is it leaves Katanji Brown-Jackson as the last remaining justice to have been in the majority in all of the merits decisions so far. She's now eight for eight on the winning side um, of all the cases that are all the decisions that have resolved uh, art previously argued cases. Now, it might seem... Maybe a bit surprising that you know a liberal Democratic appointee like Jackson has been on such a winning streak, um, and in fact, yeah, Thomas and Alito, the two most conservative justices, arguably have actually dissented the most so far. Granted, it's a pretty small sample size, and it really gets down to the fact that uh, you know the first you know ten or so opinions each year tend to involve these highly technical or non-controversial issues. Uh, generally speaking, if a decision at this point is not unanimous, then it's got like a weird lineup like, you know, Roberts, Alito and uh, uh, Thomas with Kavanaugh, Gorsuch joining up with the liberals. And that's what we've been seeing so far. So uh, it's probably fair to say that this isn't a majority streak that's going to last very long. We've got a big term coming up with all sorts of hot button issues. And we've seen from oral arguments and cases involving affirmative action and voting rights that 
Jackson is probably almost definitely going to stake out different positions than the conservative majority on the court. Well, we'll be on watch to see which one which one of these opinions is the first to break. Yeah, how long can she go, right? Yeah. So the court also heard a full slate of oral arguments this week, and we're going to be focusing on Monday's hearing in an immigration case called United States versus Hansen, which centers around the constitutionality of a federal law that makes it a crime to encourage or induce illegal immigration. Joining us to discuss the case is Law 360's senior immigration reporter, Britton Eakin. Welcome to the show, Britton. Thank you. So, Britton, can you explain the facts of this one for us and how it got all the way up to the Supreme Court? Yeah, so um, it found its way to the court um, because a California man, uh, Helaman Hansen, was convicted in 2017 by a federal jury on more than a dozen counts. Um, Most of those pertain to mail and wire fraud, but he was also convicted of two counts for violating um, a provision of Title Title VIII that was what was at issue in the case. So um, his conviction stemmed from like a $1 million bogus adult adoption scheme that he was uh, involved in. He was um, essentially promising uh, U.S. citizenship uh, through this program, even though U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services had told him that undocumented immigrants who were adopted after their 16th birthday um, couldn't get citizenship through the method that he was promoting. So he was essentially holding out this idea that they could become adopted adults and somehow find a a pathway uh, to become citizens of the U.S., which is obviously not the case, right? Right. That's correct. That's exactly what he was doing and what he was convicted for. So he then appealed to the Ninth Circuit, um, which found they upheld his convictions for the mail and wire fraud, but overturned the two convictions um, for violating, um, I think it's Section 1324, um, a provision under that section of Title VIII um, that bars, uh, makes it a felony to encourage or induce someone to enter or stay illegally in the U.S. because they found the law was unconstitutionally overbroad, that it could like sweep up large swaths of speech that would ordinarily be protected by the First Amendment. Can you tell us a little bit more about that law? Um, that's kind of at the center, I think, of the, the arguments that, that took place this week. Um, how long has it been on the books? Why have there been recent efforts to get it struck down? Yeah, so according to the filings in the case, it has been on the books for about 70 years. And um, I think the recent efforts to strike it down really do stem from concerns that it is overbroad, as the Ninth Circuit found, because it could, um, in theory, potentially sweep up a lot of protected speech Um, that kind of intersects with everyday conversations involving immigration advocacy, legal advice, family matters. Um, The ACLU filed an amicus brief in the case saying that it could apply to things like a grandmother saying she hopes her undocumented child won't leave leave the country, things of that nature. So the argument is really like this could have a real potentially chilling effect on advocacy, um, on how um, immigration attorneys do their jobs. Um, Hansen's attorney said during arguments that uh, immigration attorneys are already concerned and talking to each other about how they might have to um, like revise the advice that they give uh, based on the outcome of this case. And 
dedicated Supreme Court watchers may, you know, find that this sounds a little bit familiar, right? Because it's not the first time that the court has considered the constitutionality or the breadth of this law, right? That's right. Yeah, they had um, a case before them. I think they decided in May of 2020, looking at this exact uh, provision of Title VIII, but they did not decide the constitutional question in that case. So it sounds like, you know, the argument against the law, as you say, it sweeps it sweeps pretty broadly. It could potentially uh, incriminate the, the grandmother who's, you know, encouraging their grandson to, to stay in the country, perhaps illegally. Um, but what what's kind of the argument that the United States is making as it's appealing this ruling by the Ninth Circuit in attempting to kind of reinstate this longstanding criminal prohibition against encouraging or inducing illegal immigration? Yeah, so I think um, the government uh, may have conceded during the argument that if it is read very broadly, it would be unconstitutional, but we're urging the justices not to read it that broadly. Um, the government argued that it really is limited to speech that's essential to criminal conduct, like solicitation and aiding and abetting. And so they want the justices to read the terms encourage or induce to mean that, to mean soliciting and aiding and abetting. Um, and they also, the government also said there needs to be um, an intent requirement. And because the bar is so high, then the government contended that everyday speech wouldn't get swept up in that. I think the government's attorney struggled just a little bit during the argument to like kind of um, draw the line for the justices um, about how and when and why it wouldn't apply to some of the hypotheticals that the advocates um, brought up. What was your overall takeaway from all arguments? So it was hard to get a read on all of the justices. Um, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts didn't ask too many questions. Um, and Justice Kavanaugh had a lot of questions that were really focused in on what the potential impact could be. One of the examples that he used repeatedly was uh, charitable organizations who deal regularly with undocumented immigrants. But it was clear that Justice Gorsuch, Thomas, Coney Barrett, and Alito seemed um, skeptical that the law is overbroad. Um and then Justices Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan uh, were more concerned that the law could be subject to, um, I guess, abuse is might be a good way to say it. They were also concerned that the government was asking them to rewrite the statute, and the government denied that's what it was asking for. Um, but they seemed a little bit concerned about that and also that Congress specifically took out the concepts of soliciting and aiding and abetting uh, from the law in 1952. And Justice Jackson in particular seemed hesitant to read back into the law something that she said Congress had intentionally excluded. Um, but again, it's hard to get a read because there's the two wildcard justices. Um, who it's It was a little bit more difficult to tell which way they might be leaning. Well, I appreciate you um, kind of establishing that that nuance here that, you know, even if there was some skepticism of, uh, you know, this law being unconstitutional, it's not totally clear 
you know, w- what a majority will do in this case, but kind of drilling down a little bit farther on this issue of this line drawing, uh, in particular about Kavanaugh asking, and I, I think your, your article uh, quotes uh, Sotomayor's questions as well, um, it seemed like they were perhaps not really satisfied with the the kind of line that uh, the Deputy Solicitor General in this case, Brian Fletcher, was drawing in kind of uh, excusing a lot of this conduct from prosecution under the law. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. And I think that's a fair um, assessment. Um, as I mentioned, Justice Kavanaugh asked questions about whether the law could apply to charitable organizations who, for example, provide food and shelter to undocumented immigrants. Um, and he did note during oral arguments that some of them um, have expressed um, sincere concern that it would impact their daily activities that they do regularly um, with non-citizens. And just to kind of jump on that point, I mean, Sotomayor in particular, she seemed to be bringing up uh, the the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol actually, you know, compiling these lists of potential charitable organizations or journalists, et cetera. Um, so yeah. maybe hinting at a real world example of that. What's what's the story there? So um, that is one example uh, of the government invoking the law to open investigations. And uh, what Justice Sotomayor was referring to is a CBP, a Customs and Border Protection investigation of journalists um, and activists who were covering the migrant caravan back in 2018 and 2019. Um, so CBP uh, had invoked the law um, to say that they intend, well, they said, I guess, that they intended to rely on the statute to prosecute those people. And no prosecutions ended up coming from that investigation. But Hansen's attorney said during the arguments, um, just the fact that the law was invoked and can be again to open an investigation shows that there is a real danger of potential chill. And how about from Gorsuch and Barrett? What were they asking? Um, they were really focused on uh, noting that there haven't been any prosecutions um, of the nature that the Ninth Circuit hypothesized about, that all of the advocates um, are warning about. So they were really focused on a lack of real-world chilling effect so far, um, going back to the fact that this law has been on the books for so long. And so the fact that it has existed for so long without all of these uh, terrible hypotheticals coming to pass seems to indicate that um, it isn't really that big um, of a concern. And I think Justice Gorsuch in particular was really not impressed (laughs) with Hansen, um, to say the least, and noted um, that Hansen's speech had definitely not been chilled and he had used it to enrich himself by defrauding people. And that's an interesting point to kind of bring it back to Hansen himself, who's mm-hmm. this convicted fraudster, not exactly your sympathetic grandmother, right? Um, I mean, I'm wondering if there's any, like, because I, I understand that the, the government is is saying that this law as applied to Hansen himself is not unconstitutional. But I'm just wondering if there's a universe in which potentially the court rules on maybe narrower grounds that, you know, this law wasn't unconstitutional when it comes to at least this particular defendant, but maybe there's a a universe out there where there is an overly zealous prosecutor going after charitable organizations or activists or reporters or grandmothers or what have you. 
Yeah, I think that certainly immigration attorneys, immigration right, immigrant rights advocates, um, free speech organizations are not going to be um, comfortable um, if that door is left open. It's hard to say what will happen. Um, it's possible that a more sympathetic figure could elicit a different outcome. But I think if you see someone like a grandmother being prosecuted under this law, there's going to be a massive um, outcry about it. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's hard to say. I, th I definitely think it's not something that um, a lot of folks want to see. Right. And, and, that kind of goes back to the difficulty that the government lawyer had in trying to draw that line. Because from reading from your story, he would he rather than offering this hard line, no, of course that would not be allowed. That would be unconstitutional in the law. He would say things like, "That would be a harder case." I don't think that that's the case. But Sotomayor kind of pushed back against that, right? She did most definitely. She um, said, "Please don't use words like think, because once you do that, you're basically throwing the First Amendment under the bus." Um, those weren't her exact words, but I think that was in the spirit of what she said. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, he he wasn't so 100% certain or concrete um, in his statements about who this law would or wouldn't touch. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Britton, for coming on and talking about this really fascinating case. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for, for a decision. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. This was fun. Well, that was a great conversation. Definitely interesting to learn about this case. Uh, Jimmy, I think that does it for us today, though. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Britton Egan. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. 